Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23? We're continuing our studies in uh, the Gospel of Luke. We come to the end of chapter 3 and we're reading from verse 50. So Luke chapter 23 and verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When he took it down uh, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his word. Uh, have you ever heard of the Susan Boyle moment? The Susan Boyle moment, do you know what it even is? The Susan Boyle moment is when somebody steps up to the mark, steps out of security, uh, obscurity, and does something that's quite unexpected and extraordinary. It refers to Susan Boyle's appearance on Britain's Got Talent in 2009 when this rather dishevelled Glaswegian woman uh, uh, appeared before a rather dismissive Simon Kyle. But when she sang I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables, she stunned the judges and stole the show. And so when anyone does anything that's unexpected and that takes people by surprise uh, by brilliance, People now refer to it as the Susan Boyle moment. Well, in the Bible, we have the original Susan Boyle moment, or what I like to call the Joseph of Arimathea moment. Here is a previously unknown man who, at a time of great crisis in the events surrounding the death and crucifixion of our Lord, steps out of security, steps up to the mark, takes the body of Jesus and lays it to rest in a tomb. An extraordinary act of courage and devotion that even a casual reader, that takes even a casual reader by surprise. The Joseph of Arimathea moment. And it's Joseph of Arimathea that we want to look at this morning. And I want you to notice four things. The person he was, the weakness that he displayed, the courage he found in the ministry he exercised. So first of all then, the person he was. Look at verses 50 and 51. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Here we are introduced to this man who uh, was from uh, the Jewish town of Arimathea. I think the NIV captures the sense of that when it says he was from the Judean town of Arimathea. In other words, he was from Judea. When we put the gospel records together, we begin to build up an impressive picture of this man. You will notice in verse 50 that we are told he was a member of the council. The authorized version says a counselor. That is the Jewish ruling council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a body of 70 men, 72 men, including the two high priests, who made the rules, interpreted the law, and were responsible for the upkeep of the temple. They ruled over Jews, not just 
in Jerusalem, but Jews throughout the known world. They settled disputes among Jews and acted like the Supreme Court in legal matters, more equivalent to the House of Lords than the House of Commons. They were the aristocracy of ancient uh, uh, Judaism. And Joseph was a member of this august body. Indeed, Mark tells us he was a prominent member. He was well-known, well-respected, even within the council itself. Matthew tells us he was rich, and that's uh, clearly illustrated in the passage that we read because uh, we have him owning a tomb in Jerusalem. But he's not from Jerusalem. He's from Arimathea. So his family tomb was in Arimathea. So he had to buy that's why it was a new tomb excavated out of solid rock in a place where um, property prices were at a premium that all took money effort and and uh, commitment Uh, most as I say would have been buried in their family tombs in their own village where their families had been buried for generations so Joseph was a man of influence a man of means and a man of standing He was well-known and respected throughout Judea. But more than that, we're told something about his moral and spiritual condition. In verse 50, we're told that he was a good and righteous man, that he was a man of good character. The authorized version says he was a good and just man. There was something about this man that generated respect. Remember, he was a judge as a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was just, he was fair in his deliberations. Spiritually, we are told that he stood in the line of Old Testament believers who lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Verse 51, he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking and longing for something better when the Christ, the promised Christ, the promised Messiah would come to rule over his people. Just like Simeon and Anna at the beginning of this gospel, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel for the redemption of Jerusalem. He was an Old Testament believer, a true believer, a true Jew. But more than that, both Matthew and John tell us that he was a disciple of Jesus. Matthew says, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. So this man... Joseph, this man of influence, this man of means, this man of standing, who lived his life looking and longing for the coming of Christ. He had heard Christ, he had seen Christ, and he had believed in Christ. He wasn't a new follower in that sense. He already had come and put his faith in Jesus and became his disciple. That's the person he was. An important man, a good man, a spiritual man, a man who had come to believe in Jesus, the person he was. The second thing I want you to notice is the weakness he displayed. Although it's clear from the witness of the New Testament that Joseph was a good and godly man, it's also clear that he was a weak man. Now we get a little hint of that in verses 50 and 51 when we are told that he had not consented to their decision and action. That he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, but he had not consented to their decision. Their decision, that is, to condemn Jesus to death. Now Luke tells us explicitly that 
uh, Joseph hadn't consented to that decision because he was a good and righteous man. But Mark tells us, listen to this carefully, Mark tells us that all of the Sanhedrin had voted in favor of his death. Mark 14, 64, they all condemned him worthy of death. In other words, as the votes were cast, as tradition had it from the youngest to the eldest, every one of the Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty. And if that's the case, the only conclusion that we can come to is that Joseph wasn't present. If he hadn't consented to the death of Jesus, then he wasn't present when the vote was cast for the death of Jesus. Now, why wasn't he there? Arimathea was in uh, Judea, so it wasn't that he had far to travel. Remember, this was the time of Passover, so all Jews uh, in the Um, well, from all over the known world, but specifically in that general location, would have made their way to Jerusalem. But he wasn't there. Why wasn't he there? Well, was he sick? Was he ill? Well, Well, that's unlikely, because only a few hours later, he is able to go to Pilate, request the body, and then take the body down from the cross. Yes, it's highly commendable that he hadn't consented to the death of Jesus, But he hadn't spoken up for the life of Jesus. He either slipped out of the Sanhedrin before the vote was cast, or he hadn't turned up for the vote to be taken. Now, why was that? Well, turn over with me to John's Gospel, to chapter 19, because we're told explicitly the problem. John John 19 and verse 38. John 19 and verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, notice this, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body for fear of the Jews. Now, when the New Testament uses that expression, the Jews, It generally refers to the leadership of Judaism, to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, and to the uh, scribes. So here is a member of the Sanhedrin who slips out before the vote has been taken because we we know that all voted in favor or else didn't turn up. And the, the, the reason was he was fearful. He kept his discipleship secret because he feared the reaction of the fellow counselors on the Sanhedrin. And I think that's why he slipped out, because he feared what reaction uh, he would meet when he stood up for Jesus. There was obviously a great antagonism to Jesus and to his ministry, and Joseph felt It was better to stay away and say nothing. He feared the reaction of his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. Now, Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. And it did. For our Lord was crucified without one voice being raised in his defense. And we know that there were at least two men on the Sanhedrin that were sympathetic to our Lord Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It was Edmund Burke, the 19th century 
Irish political thinker who said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And Joseph was a good man, but he was a weak man. And when they came to uh, the bit where the rubber hits the road, he withdrew. Now it is true that some people rush in where angels fear to tread. That's why our Lord urges us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, that we've got to be sensible and sensitive when it comes to our standing up for Christ. There are some people who think the more bold and brash and arrogant they are, the more offense that they give, the more faithful they are to the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon says of such people, they are fearless because they are brainless. But there is also the opposite danger, which I think the majority, for the majority of us proves to be the greater temptation, and that is to sit back and say nothing, to hide our love and loyalty to Jesus out of fear of giving offense. But Jesus made it clear that confession is an integral part of true discipleship. He said in Luke chapter 12, Whoever confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will confess before the angels of God. And he who disowns me before men, he will disown. Joseph was trying to do something that was ultimately impossible. Secret discipleship is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Because either the secrecy will kill the discipleship or the discipleship will kill the secrecy. Romans 10 and 9, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's not making confession a a necessary requirement of salvation, but he's saying if you believe in your heart, confession of necessity follows. If you truly believe in Jesus, confession must follow. There is no room in the kingdom for secret disciples. I wonder if I'm speaking to anyone this morning who has come to faith, but secretly. As you have listened to the gospel being uh, expounded week by week, uh, the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and you have come inwardly but secretly to believe in Jesus. And there's a fear that has gripped your heart that prevents you from sharing openly what has happened to you. A fear of what people will say, a, a fear of what people will think, a fear of how people will react. But you see, confession is a necessary consequence of true salvation. You need to understand that you are ultimately the loser if you fail to identify yourself with Jesus. Think of how much Joseph missed out by being a secret disciple. The companionship of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, his secrecy would be something that he would bitterly regret for the rest of his life. His fear of man meant that he followed at a distance and missed out on so much because of that failure to identify with Jesus. That was his great weakness. He was a disciple, sure, but he was a secret disciple. The weakness he displayed, the person he was, the weakness he displayed, the third thing I want you to notice is the courage he found. I want you to notice this change that came over Joseph in verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
That was a very bold and brave thing to do. Mark tells us that he went boldly to ask for the body. A transformation had taken place in his heart and suddenly without fear and openly he goes to Pilate to ask for the body. He had no time to waste. Jesus had died at three o'clock on the Friday. The Sabbath began at six o'clock on the the Friday evening at at sunset. So there was a three-hour window. We know that Passover always happened on the Jewish month month of Nisan, the 14th. Um, and, And so when it coincided with the Sabbath, that Sabbath became a high Sabbath or a, a special Sabbath. He had to act quickly if he was to retrieve the body of Jesus because nothing, absolutely nothing, would happen on the Sabbath day. So he boldly goes to Pilate and he asks for the body um, who has the power to release the body. He has no time to waste. Now we know the Jews, that's the Sanhedrin, had gone to Pilate and asked him to break the legs of those that were hanging on the cross so that they would uh, die before the high Sabbath began. So Pilate sent word to the centurion. The centurion reported back from Golgotha that there was no need to break the legs of Jesus because he was already dead. That all happened, remember, within that three-hour window between the death of Jesus and the uh, burial of Jesus. Spices had to be bought, the body had to be washed and wrapped according to Jewish custom. uh, Each uh, limb was was wrapped in cloth, the torso was wrapped in cloth, and then there was a cloth put on the head. And the spices were put in between the gaps in the cloth. So in all likelihood, the members of the Sanhedrin were still in with Pilate when Uh, Joseph arrived to ask for the body. And here is this man, one of their own number, one of their leading members, who comes boldly and asks for the body of Jesus. How shocked they must have been. What's Joseph doing? Why has he come? Why wasn't he uh, there earlier at the trial? I thought he was sick. What's he doing? He's asking for the body. What does he want to do with the body? He's giving his tomb to this uh, imposter, this usurper, and this traitor. What a stir would have been generated. What a commotion would have been generated by the very action of going to ask for the body. And then he, and we know Nicodemus accompanied him. He and Nicodemus go to the cross. Jesus has already died. And as they reach out to touch the body, there would have been a scandalized intake of breath. The next day, well, within maybe an hour, there was, it was the high Sabbath. Now, we can miss this with our 21st century eyes, but for a Jew to touch a dead body, that would render them unclean for seven days. So they wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple. They wouldn't be allowed to worship in the synagogue on this high Sabbath. And jaws would have dropped. There would have been, as I say, that scandalized intake of breath. There would have been whispering in the the crowd. What on earth is he doing? As they take that body down from that perpendicular pole, as they lay it out, as they... Uh, the crossbeam as they withdraw the nails, as they remove the crown of thorns, as they cover his nakedness. 
Some people would have just been rooted to the spot, absolutely stunned. Others would have rushed off and, uh, and fed into the grapevine. You'll never guess what Joseph and, and Nicodemus did, these two members of the Sanhedrin. Now we can criticize uh, Joseph for coming to this late, and he did come to it late, of boldly confessing his faith, but he did come to it. One has to ask then, where were the disciples? Why didn't they come and retrieve the body? Well, they were locked away for fear of the Jews. And now these two Johnny-come-latelys come, and they treat the, the body of Jesus with respect and with decorum and they, they uh, remove it from the cross and they uh, lay it in the tomb. J.C. Ryle says sometimes the strongest and hardiest trees are the slowest in growth. Sometimes the, sometimes the strongest and hardiest of trees are the slowest in growth. Sometimes it takes grace time to manifest itself in people's hearts and uh, when they don't immediately really, uh, uh, reveal their true loyalties, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not true believers. It just takes time. Now, we must ask ourselves, what precipitated the change? What brought the change in Joseph's uh, attitude and his actions? From this secret believer who wouldn't say boo to a ghost to this bold, courageous believer who goes to retrieve the body of Jesus. And there's one answer to that, that change, and it's the cross, the death of Jesus. Obviously awakens something in Joseph, and for that matter in Nicodemus. And the cross does that. It's the great remedy to hesitating and uh, uh, a timorous faith. As he witnessed his suffering, his mockery, his torture, his death, he could remain silent no longer as a good and righteous man. He had to stand up for justice. He had to stand up for truth. He had to stand up for his Savior and confess him as his Lord. You see, there comes a point uh, in our experience when we begin to understand the cross and what God has actually done for us in Jesus That compels us to stand up for Jesus. That's what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says the love of Christ uh, constrains us. It constrains us. If we understand the cross, we cannot keep quiet about our Lord. The cross makes us bold and brave for Jesus. Ashamed of Jesus of my God. Who purchased me with his own blood. Of him who to retrieve my loss. Despised the shame. Endured the cross. Ashamed of Jesus. Yes I may. When I have no guilt to wash away. No tear to wipe. No good to crave. No fears to quell. No soul to save. And can I say to you. If you're, if you're one of these secret believers. That you have never actually identified yourself publicly with Jesus. I say to you, think about the cross. Meditate upon the cross. Read passages in scripture about the cross because nothing will put steel into your back more than uh, uh, realizing that you are a debtor to mercy alone. The person he was, the weakness he displayed, 
the courage he found. And the last thing I, I want you to notice is the ministry that he exercised. The ministry that he exercised. It's important for us just to understand that Joseph, in the actions that he took, exercised a vital, a vital, vitally important ministry when it came to Jesus. That in the plan and purpose of God, things had to happen. And unless Joseph and Nicodemus had acted in the way that they did, they wouldn't have happened. So first of all, they fulfilled prophecy. I want you to just turn back to this wonderful portion of scripture in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And, uh, you know, uh, Augustine writing in the 5th century says, we look at this in lockdown, this wonderful chapter, but uh, Augustine writing in the 5th century says, methinks he writes a, a gospel and not a prophecy. It's, it's almost as if there's an eyewitness standing in the uh, shadow of Calvary recording the events as they unfolded. But we know that this prophecy was completed 700 years before the birth of, or was given 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and that the Old Testament, and this is a historical fact, was completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus. We know that to be a fact. And yet we're told how he would die and we're told uh, the suffering that he would endure. Um, and, uh, and then we're told uh, how he would be buried. And look at verse 9 uh, of that. And he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, the Hebrew there is, is very difficult to translate, and our versions vary from place to place. But it seems, uh, from version to version, but it seems to be the best way to take that is that they assigned him a grave with the wicked, but, and I think the New King James Version translates it in this way, but he was with the rich in his death. So their intention... Uh, with Jesus was to trash his body, to throw it on Gehenna. Gehenna was the city dump outside the walls of Jerusalem, which burned continually. That's why Jesus used it as an illustration of hell. He says the, 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 uh, the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. It was constantly burning. And so their intention was to take the body of Jesus along with the criminals and just dump it in Gehenna. So he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich in his death. And God so ordered events that he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And when Joseph came forward and offered his tomb as a burial place for Jesus, he fulfilled prophecy. I'm sure he did it unwittingly. He didn't know that he was fulfilling prophecy, but prophecy was fulfilled. Now, as I said before, if one of those prophecies in the Old Testament, and there are at least 600 uh, direct prophecies about the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, if one of those prophecies had failed to be fulfilled, we could take our Bibles and we could put them in the fictional section of our libraries. It would be an interesting book. It would be uh, um, uh, a good book to read. It would give us a lot of information about culture and history of uh, ancient peoples. But that's all it would be. 
But that prophecy, they were going to dump, trash the body of Jesus in Gehenna. But he was buried with the rich in his death. And if that had have happened, if Jesus had been dumped in Gehenna, that prophecy would not be fulfilled. You see the vital role, the vital ministry that Joseph and Nicodemus exercised at that particular time. So, prophecy was fulfilled, but secondly, uh, their testimony, the testimony was validated. I don't know, we we would skip over, uh, I don't know if you noticed the verses at the end of of that section, at the end of the chapter, we we could skip over them very, very quickly, but verses uh, 55 and 56, the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb. Notice this. They saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Here are the women who had followed him from Galilee, the two Marys, um, uh, Joanna and Salome, and they had followed uh, from, from Galilee. And, and they watch exactly what happens to the body of Jesus. There was, remember, this uh, two or three hour window to buy spices before uh, to prepare the tomb, to prepare the body and lay the body to rest. These women also wanted to anoint the body, but they hadn't time. So they went home and prepared spices, planning to come back when the Sabbath was over. But notice verse 55. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and, notice this, saw the tomb and how his body was led. These women, you know, two Marys, Joanna and Salome, saw the tomb and how the body was led out. How the body was laid out. Now, all of these things are important in validating the testimony of the resurrection. Some say that the disciples on the Sunday morning went to the wrong tomb. No, no, no. Because the woman saw the tomb. They saw the tomb. Others say that the body was stolen. But the woman saw that the, the, the stone was rolled in front of the tomb and the tomb was sealed. And remember, Peter and John saw the grave clothes. That's significant because they were still in their wrapped form. They were still, uh, they were still as, it was still as if a body was in them, that the Lord had passed through those grave uh, clothes. And all those things validated the testimony of the resurrection. Can you imagine for a moment what would have happened on the Sunday morning if the Romans had got their way and dumped the body of Jesus in Gehenna? And so the angels say, he is not here, he is risen. Really? Could the fires not have consumed him? Could a wild animal not have taken him? Could his disciples not come uh, have come and stolen the body? Could the, the birds of prey not devour him? But Joseph acting in the way he did validated the testimony of the resurrection. They knew where he was put. They knew how he was buried. And they knew that the tomb was sealed. 
So when the angels said, he is not here, he is risen, they could believe that announcement and that truth. So this Johnny come lately performed a great service to Jesus and the church in burying our Lord in his own tomb. He fulfilled prophecy. He validated testimony that they could say with assurance, they could believe with assurance that he was indeed risen. And the message of Joseph of Arimathea is that it's never too late to shine. You may be a hesitant and half-hearted disciple, but in God's grace, you can yet prove useful for the kingdom. And I wonder, will some here have a Susan Boyle moment or a Joseph of Arimathea moment that when a crisis comes, you step up to the mark and you outshine everybody else. May God give us all grace to be uh, people of courage, people who aren't afraid to confess him before others, even when confessing him brings ridicule on ourselves. The person he was, he was a man of standing, man of means, a wealthy man, a good and a just man. The weakness he displayed, he was a man who lacked courage. He was a, a secret disciple of Jesus. The change that came over him, I can't remember that point there, it's the courage he found, the courage he found that uh, after the death of Jesus, something was triggered in his heart that gave him the strength to go to Pilate and ask him for the body. And the ministry he exercised, a very vital ministry. He fulfilled prophecy and he validated their testimony. Amen.